Hey, it's Josh. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to let you all know that the Vermont Public Spring Membership Drive has arrived. Donations from folks like you make everything we do here possible. If you want to help support our people-powered journalism, be sure to make a donation in any amount by March 16th by going to bravelittlestate.org donate. And as always, thank you for your support. Thanks to Vita for their support of Brave Little State. Since 1974, Vita has helped Vermont businesses grow and thrive. From agriculture to energy, startups to family companies. Find solutions that fit your business. Visit VEDA.org to start your next chapter today. And Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer-owned business crafting CBD products right here in Vermont. Learn more about their sustainable farming practices, delivery options, and how to support local farmers at sunsetlakecbd.com. From Vermont Public Radio, this is Brave Little State. So where, like, why did you ask this question? What made you um, interested in it? You know, I originally asked the question in August 2016. Okay. So uh, I was thinking about it. And I was like, oh, yeah, I remember uh, my landlord has a camp right on Mallet's Bay, and nobody could swim in the bay. Mm. Uh, and that's kind of what got me thinking, why is the bay not swimmable? This is Mike Brown. He grew up in Rutland, lives in Winooski now. And a while back, he started thinking about water quality in Vermont. In the news at the time, I recall hearing about Virgins in Rutland having wastewater issues. He'd hear stories about thousands of gallons of sewage being released into Otter Creek. My dad used to fish in the Otter Creek. And fishing in the Otter Creek at this point is unimaginable because it has sewage problems. And the idea of all this sewage started to preoccupy Mike. His brother Ben, too. Ben still lives in Rutland. He has a young daughter. And he'd hear about sewage overflows and get all stressed out. The next day, he would be grilling the local water municipal people about, hey, why are we dumping sewage? Like, just out of not understanding. Like, I know that there are reports that you can find or be alerted to where it tells you, yep, we dumped so many thousands of gallons of raw sewage into your local water stream. And Mike was basically just wondering, like, what is going on here? And they're required to tell people, but they're not necessarily required to explain all the nuance of what's happening there. <laughs> Are these system malfunctions? Did someone mess up and press the wrong button? And how is all this connected with pollution in Lake Champlain? What are we going to do about this problem? Because it's stopping us from enjoying the lake. Mike figured there were a lot of reasons, but he was hung up on sewage. He also knew Vermont's underground infrastructure is getting older. So he came to us with this question. How are we going to address the aging water sewage systems in Vermont? And then we put the question in a public voting round, and you all voted, and it won. So this month, yes, we are talking about poop. We are talking about poop in the water. It's going to be that kind of show. Brave Little State, VPR's people-powered journalism podcast. I'm Angela Evansy. This is a show about curiosity. We take on your questions about Vermont, our region, and its people, and there is no question too frivolous or too wonky. 
This month, we go on numerous field trips with Mike Brown to try to get a better understanding of our sewage systems and figure out how all of this is connected to Vermont's water quality. Yeah, it's a complicated big picture to try and wrap my head around, and that's kind of why I put Brave Little State on the on the mission <laughs> to help me answer this question. We have support from the VPR Journalism Fund. Welcome. We did confirm that Mike has no political agenda here. Is this connected to your work at all? No, not at all. I work for a software company. Okay. I kind of sound like a lobbyist, don't I? <laughs> If Mike were a lobbyist, he would have known when he asked his question that sewage overflows are actually just a tiny contributor to what you may think of as Vermont's biggest water quality problem, blue-green algae blooms. They come from something called phosphorus loading, and they're what close the beaches on Lake Champlain. They've even killed dogs. But just a few quick numbers here. Of all the phosphorus that Vermont sends into the lake, Agriculture is the number one contributor at 41%. Huge, huge percent. And wastewater treatment plants and sewage contribute just 4%. Yeah. Obviously, the sewage overflows that spurred Mike's question are totally gross. And they cause short-term health hazards with E. coli and so forth. But they're not really what's troubling Lake Champlain. And uh, coming to that realization, I'm like, well, maybe there's not even a story here. Now, Mike was such a champion question asker that before our first interview, he did some research and found those numbers that I just cited on his own in a 2015 report. The State of the Lake. The State of the Lake report. It's put out by the Lake Champlain Basin Program. And so Mike finds the report right as we're kicking off this investigation. And he's thinking to himself, maybe... I'm going down the wrong path and asking the wrong question. I'm like, but then I thought about my question. I was like, well, the water sewer systems may be aging and that could still be an issue. And you are definitely right about that. That's my colleague, Taylor Dobbs. He spent a long time reporting on sewage, if you can believe it, for VPR. Taylor, hello. Hey. So why is Mike right that there is still a story here? Well, a big part of the reason Mike's right is because some of these pipes are just extremely old. Like down in Rutland, they did some work a few years ago, and they were pulling up pipes out of the ground that were still in use. And those pipes were installed when Abraham Lincoln was not even president yet. So this is the 1800s these pipes are going in. Okay, so that's definitely there. That's part of it. That's a huge part of it. But we kind of need to step back because we can't really talk about the question of sewage and sewage overflows without talking about these things called combined sewer overflows. And we can't really talk about those without talking about the Clean Water Act. All right, well, let's start then with the Clean Water Act. All right, really quickly, because this stuff can get kind of boring. The Clean Water Act was passed in 1972. It was this sweeping national legislation that was going to help our rivers and streams and lakes become more clean, swimmable, drinkable, that kind of thing. And so in Vermont, we got a tidal wave of money for clean water, And a lot of towns and cities didn't even have sewage systems in place. So they were using that money to build their sewage systems. And a key thing about that is in the 70s and 80s, the way you were supposed to design a sewage system was to put stormwater, that's the stuff that's like running off the streets and parking lots, in with the sewage. So you have stormwater and sewage going down these big pipes, and they go to the treatment plant together. And that way the treatment plant is treating storm runoff and sewage together. Why were the systems designed that way? So they designed them like that because stormwater that's coming from land near people, it has pollution in it. 
to some degree. And so what they were thinking is that if they collect all of that storm runoff and then they treat it where they're treating the sewage, the end result will actually be more clean water. Instead of dirty water running off the land into the rivers and streams, they were going to clean it all and then you'd have this really clean river and stream. And that's the point of the Clean Water Act. Well, great. Okay. So, and that's what we have and everything's going super great. Wrong. (laughs) So we talked about combined sewers. Now let's talk about this thing that everybody in this world loves to talk about, and they're called CSOs. And that stands for Combined Sewer Overflow. And that's what happens when you have one of these combined systems that's collecting stormwater and sewage, and there's too much stormwater. So if there's this huge rainstorm or a big snowmelt like we saw this spring... There's just too much water entering the system. All these systems have a maximum amount that they can process per day. And beyond that, they just can't take any more water. They have to do something with that excess. And the options are not good. They can basically either let it back up into homes and businesses or let it overflow into rivers and streams. And since backing up into homes and businesses is like really gross and sounds like a terrible idea. I mean, it's just like it would be coming up right out of people's drains. Right, like right up through the tub drain or into the toilet. Not a good scene. A lot of basement drains. Pretty gross. So if that's the other option, then dumping sewage into the rivers mixed with a bunch of that stormwater, that kind of sounds a little bit better than having it in your sink. So basically like lesser of two evils. Right. So they have these overflows, but they were only supposed to happen like once every few years in these big storms. The state was saying these should be only happening on a two-year storm. So... Mm -hmm. Every two years, you might have a sewage overflow, but not a big deal because the rest of the time, all of that stormwater is being treated 100 Mm percent. But recently, we've seen that happen a lot more. Just during the month of April, while we were working on this episode, there were 15 overflows like this, and they totaled more than 1.3 million gallons. Now, that sounds like a lot, but you have to remember there are millions and millions of gallons flowing past these sewage overflows every single day. So it does get mixed in with a lot, but still pretty gross, and I probably wouldn't want to go swimming there. Yeah, definitely. Um, Okay, well, this has been a very good overview of the system that we have now. And obviously, as you've explained, like it has some pretty major imperfections. So what do you think the best way is for us to start answering Mike's question? Well, it's coincidental that Mike is from Rutland because I've done a lot of reporting there on their systems and they've been having some issues as well as making some upgrades. And so I was thinking we could start there. We're going to CSO number one, lovingly referred to as Calvary Cemetery because that's where it is. We start by heading to Rutland to meet with Jeff Wenberg. He's the commissioner of public works and he takes us to one of the city's four CSO outfalls. This one is on the far end of Cavalry Cemetery, right by Otter Creek. All right, just park right over here. And when those guys are standing, they're standing right on top. It's not the most visible civic infrastructure. That's that's a good thing. This is a place we don't want any mischief. It's a big block of cement, kind of like a pedestal, with a heavy metal hatch on top. When you climb up on top and open the hatch and look down inside, you can see water shooting through a huge pipe. Like, you could stand up in this thing. Okay, that is the sewer. The water's heading to the city's treatment plant. See it flowing in that direction diagonally? Remember that a CSO is basically a junction. When there's too much rain in the lines, the system starts working differently. Instead of going to the plant, untreated stormwater gets diverted, along with untreated sewage, straight into the river. So 
this gate basically is set up so that when the water backs up high on the sewer side, it'll open up and allow it to overflow and go to the river. If you live in Jeff Wenberg's head, heavy rain equals sewage overflows. So he's constantly watching the weather and planning ahead. Every weather forecast, especially rain, uh, is, okay, are we likely to have an event? If it's in the middle of the night, do we have to have people ready and understand that they could be called in? There's a little camera set up inside the CSO, so city employees can keep an eye on things. But it doesn't really work the way it's supposed to. After about a day, it fogs up, and it's just a fuzzy blob. So we're piloting... a wiper on that thing. They're, they're working on something like that. Yeah. And just like the camera, the CSOs themselves are operating in tough conditions. As we know, the pipes are really old. And when those systems were put in, Rutland wasn't nearly as developed as it is now. Plus, the Achilles heel of the CSO is the big rainstorm. And because of climate change, we're getting a lot more of those. It's not a good combination, as our question asker Mike figures out. Just a ballpark. Uh, How often do you see the water go over that level per Uh, year? A year, anywhere from 20 to 30 times. And arguably, it would be great if we could get it down to one, one or two every five years. One way Rutland is trying to get that number down is by upgrading its systems. And technically speaking, it's totally possible to do this. In his office in City Hall, Jeff Wenberg talks us through it. Welcome. Um, So here's the stuff. There's a big map of the city spread out on a table. And Mike, champion question asker that he is, literally puts his finger on a recent fix. I want to understand this green blotch by Crescent Street a little better. Yeah. It says uh, former combined, but now it's separated. Yep. So turns out there's a way to take the combined out of combined sewers and separate the pipes, send the sewage to the treatment plant, and treat stormwater on its own so it doesn't cause overflows. This involves something with a very cool name, the swirl separator. It goes through a vortex chamber. and like a centrifuge? Yeah, kind of. It just by itself. Just the flow of the water itself causes it to swirl. Whatever's floating in the stormwater that's not supposed to be there gets captured, and everything else goes into a stream. And it's amazing how much stuff comes out of there, and they do work. But Wenberg says separation projects like that are not the answer to Mike's question. For one, because it would be super expensive. This project Rutland did was in one neighborhood. It cost $5.2 million. And it didn't even allow them to retire one of their CSOs. It just takes the load, so to speak, off part of the system. If we were to separate everything, on this map that's currently combined. You're looking at 120 to $150 million, and that's to get rid of four locations. That's just in Rutland. Across Vermont, there are about 62 other CSOs. Now, what about the other 62? Not only can we not afford it, it's bad policy. Bad policy, Wenberg says, because combined systems, when they're not overflowing, are doing a much better job than separated systems. That swirl separator really can't compare. It's not even remotely close to what's going on at the treatment plant. Wenberg jokes on tours that he gives that if he had to choose between drinking a glass of water from Otter Creek and a glass of treated water from the sewage treatment plant, he'd choose the treated water. Though he did not demonstrate this for us. This is totally not the answer I was expecting. Because when Taylor was telling me about this $5.2 million project um, that he's 
covered in the past, I fully expected to come down here and have you say, yep, we did it, it's working great, and now we just need money to do it 10 times over. Is that surprise? Am I the only one who's surprised by this? Part of me, deep inside, wants to, to rail against it and go with the popular idea of let's never dump anything into the river. And what I'm trying to wrap my head around is the idea that it could be worse. And at this point, it's becoming clear that Mike is just in a different place. His opinion about all this is changing in real time. Like, rather than removing all of the quote-unquote spills, there's advantages that we're gaining in how much we're treating the stormwater versus the inevitable overflow that happens when a storm happens. So given the systems that we have, we're kind of between a rock and a hard place. But Jeff Wenberg does see a different answer here, one that would keep combined sewer systems but try to reduce overflows. To not throw out you know, the baby with the stormwater, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. It makes more sense to manage and control. And by manage and control, Wenberg means three things. Number one is green infrastructure. Basically, this means that instead of forcing water into pipes and trying to move it somewhere else, you slow it down. Let it infiltrate into the soil, which is basically nature's filtration system. Hang on to this idea, because we're going to come back to it. So then the second technology is more traditional stuff. It's called gray infrastructure, which is great big concrete things. Like giant holding tanks for stormwater. So you can keep it from going into the system during a big storm and causing an overflow. And third... There's a brand new one which is called real-time control, which has enormous promise. Fancy sensors, computer algorithms, inflatable dams, really high-touch monitoring and tweaking of the system. Jeff Wenberg says Cincinnati is doing a lot of this. And they've got a control room that looks like, you know, mission control in Houston, for crying out loud. So, one more time, green infrastructure, gray infrastructure, and real-time controls. Yes, and I think if we use all three intelligently, we can make some dramatic progress here. Welcome to the wind tunnel. I know, seriously. We were particularly interested in green infrastructure. So Mike and I choose the most windy day to go to the Burlington waterfront to check out a cool system that they've installed. It's right by the skate park that's named after Andy Adog Williams. There's kind of an unassuming, um, I don't even know how to describe it, sort of looks like a catchment of water. What are we looking at here? This is considered a subsurface gravel wetland system. This is Jenna Calvi, the stormwater program manager for the city of Burlington, which, it's worth noting, recently got approval from voters to spend $8.3 million on its water and sewer lines. And the water comes in through these pipes, and then the water will move laterally through the system. So it removes all of the suspended solids and um, takes up some of the nutrients and and pollution in the stormwater. Okay, so that, I think that was like 50% layman's language (laughs) and 50% (laughs) stormwater technical management. Um, Mike, do you want to take a pass at describing for listeners what we're seeing here? Uh, We have uh, two mud puddles and one of them has blue pipes sticking out. Actually, they both have blue pipes sticking out. And from what I understand, the mud puddles are affluent. How does that sound to you? Nailed it, yeah. (laughs) Basically, picture a small pond with plants growing around it. 
It's a natural version of that swirl separator Rutland installed. Except it's not diverting stormwater from the sewer system. Burlington has other projects that do do that, but this one is just slowing down what would have run straight off the skate park and into the lake with no treatment. I mean, green infrastructure is a way to try to recreate uh, more natural processes. Dan Albrecht is with the Chittenden County Regional Planning Commission and also Rethink Runoff, which is all about stormwater awareness and education. He says the idea with green infrastructure is to let stormwater do what it used to do. The key word here is infiltrate. Let the water seep right into the ground. As if there was not a parking lot there or if your home were not there. Catchphrase you hear sometimes, slow it and sink it, you know. So this gravel wetland is a nice example on a larger scale of, of what homeowners can do. And that's what Rethink Runoff is all about, helping regular Vermonters be a part of this shift. Instead of using downspouts and gutters to send all your stormwater into city pipes, create some rain barrels and rain gardens and deal with your stormwater right at home. The ideal state would be that folks think about stormwater the same way they think about recycling. Here's Jenna Kelvey again. I mean, recycling has become such an integrated part of our lives. Everybody, for the most part, recycles. We know how to do it. We know what to do with it. Um, And I think in an ideal state, we would think the same way about stormwater. It's that special kind of thinking where you have to have faith that your small actions are contributing to a bigger change, even if you can't see it. You know, in the end, the collective impact will be significant. If we could get all of the homes in the city of Burlington, you know, to disconnect from the storm sewer system, that would be great. Great because it'd take the strain off CSOs, maybe reduce the number of overflows, and also great in terms of blue-green algae. If you think back to those phosphorus numbers we talked about earlier, 41% from agriculture, 4% from wastewater treatment, well, 18% comes from urban runoff. Things like parking lots, rooftops, driveways. So by slowing the flow, you're improving water quality in more ways than one. Between green infrastructure and our chat with Jeff Wenberg, it seems like we've kind of got it figured all out, right? Separate sewage from stormwater where it makes sense, slow the stormwater down so there's less to deal with, and keep investing in the systems we've got. So if we know all that, Why did a million gallons of untreated water overflow into Vermont's streams just while we were reporting this episode? There is no problem here with any of this infrastructure that can't be fixed. It can all be fixed. Jeff Wenberg has an answer in the form of another question. The question is, you know, who's going to pay for it and how soon? To get some answers to that question, Mike and I meet up at the State House in Montpelier. There are only 20 minutes before lawmakers have to get to the House floor But Mike, the superstar, has already done some scouting and found Representative David Dean. I think I recognize him from his picture, but I don't. David Dean is chair of the House Natural Resources Committee, which helps the state figure out how to spend money on environmental issues. So it seems worth asking him about what kind of funds are available. The federal government walked away. His answer is pretty political. But the gist is that Vermont can't fund clean water projects on our own. We need help from the feds just like in the days of the Clean Water Act. But there's not as much money available as there used to be. They got more interested in fighting wars, tax breaks for really overly rich people, and sort of left this effort and the support that came to us from the federal level in the lurch. I mean, they've just walked on us completely, and we're really left to our own devices. That doesn't mean we're just giving up, though. 
Dean says his committee did make changes to a fund that helps pay for local environmental projects. It's called the Environmental Revolving Loan Fund. We've now included CSOs, so they are now an eligible activity uh, through that fund. In other words, communities can use the fund to get loans for projects like that combined sewer separation Jeff Wenberg told us about in Rutland. But Representative Dean says that's not the silver bullet either. So we've increased the amount of resources available. Is it catching up with the problem? No. I mean, the problem is still ahead of us, but we have directed additional resources to try and deal with it. But there are other sources of money, too. A 2015 state law known as the Vermont Clean Water Act created a new fund completely dedicated to cleaning up Vermont waterways. So why isn't Dean's Natural Resources Committee throwing money at the sewer overflow issue? What we're looking at, how do I say this? The best bang for the buck in terms of reducing nutrient loading and even E. coli levels is non-point source pollution. Non-point source pollution is all the water pollution that isn't flowing out of a pipe. This isn't the water coming from sewage overflows. This is water running off the land, running off of agricultural fields, running off of stockyards, running off of uh, parking lots and buildings and roads. And what Dean is saying is that the best value the state can get in terms of cleaning up water pollution has nothing to do with what we've been talking about so far. And if you think about it, that makes a lot of sense. Remember, sewage makes up less than 4% of the phosphorus problem in Lake Champlain, and phosphorus is pretty much synonymous with water pollution among Vermont's policymakers. So of course most of the money is going to preventing the 96% of pollution that isn't sewage. Dean also gets that decisions in the past are the reason that we're dealing with sewage overflows in the present. This is not a failure of someone or some institution or whatever to lead us to the combined sewer overflow problem that we have. The systems were designed to do exactly that. And now we've got to redesign and rebuild them, along with dealing with the aged infrastructure. But that doesn't mean he's ignoring sewage overflows. Dean has signed up for automated alerts from the Agency of Natural Resources, so he gets an email every time there's another overflow. Those notifications are handy if you're going swimming or fishing, but I asked David Dean why he's signed up for them, sitting in the state house all day. His answer was surprisingly philosophical. It reminds me that no matter how right you think you are, you may not be right. There may be something out there that you're not anticipating. Uh, it's what gives me uh, um, what the trust I have in the committee process because you, in fact, have so many different points of view in terms of the legislative process. You have, you know, 150 points of view. And you might not be right, no matter how right you think you are, because when those systems were designed and put in place, it was right. And that's what we did. And we were wrong. Okay, now we go back and try and fix it. So what I'm reminded of is, don't be too sure. Listen to other people. Wise words to live by, whether you're talking about sewage or pretty much anything else. Thank you very much for right. your time. Dean. I'm headed to the floor. All right. Yep, I'm holding you up. Thank you very much. Yep.
What David Dean said will be worth keeping in mind as Vermont tries to solve its water quality problems. Because as you've heard, the answer to Mike's question is very complicated. And there really is no easy fix. I get those overflow alerts, too. And right before Mike and I met up at the State House, an alert came in on my phone. Rutland had had an overflow. That was my colleague, Taylor Dobbs. He reported and produced this episode with me. Thank you so much for listening to the show this month. You, too, can sign up for sewage overflow notifications and learn about how you can infiltrate stormwater on your property with help from Rethink Runoff. We've got those links up at bravelittlestate.org. While you're there, you can also submit a question of your own and vote on the one you want us to tackle next. Brave Little State is a production of Vermont Public Radio. We have support from the VPR Journalism Fund and from VPR members. If you like this show, consider becoming one. Our editor is Lynn McRae, and our theme music is by Ty Gibbons. Other music in this episode was by Poddington Bear and Blue Dot Sessions. Music selection this month by Liam Elder Connors, and we had engineering support from Chris Albertine. I'm Angela Evansy. Next month, we'll be back with a question from Hannah Linder Finley of Westminster West. What is it like to be a migrant worker in Vermont? Until then, remember to be brave and ask questions. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.